This is The Next Level, a brand new show on the Packet Pushers community channel, where real engineers charge into difficult IT management situations, lead from the front, and get it right. Join us as we ask the hard questions that most people are too afraid to ask and figure out how to drive positive change in your organization. We'll take you from the CLI to the CIO. I'm Damien Hoising from Packet Brigade. You can find me at Twitter at, at Packet Brigade. Hi, I'm Drew Conrimari from Packet Pushers. You may have heard me on the Network Break podcast, and you can find me on Twitter at Drew underscore CM. And on today's show, we're going to walk you through six surefire steps to help you build a solid technical team. Joining us today is Craig Campbell, an experienced information security leader. Craig, would you please introduce yourself and share a little bit about your background with the audience? Sure. Hello. My name is Craig Campbell, as mentioned. I am currently the IT security and compliance manager for a major law firm prior to this job. I've been in all levels of InfoSec in the financial, manufacturing, and retail industries. Thanks, Craig. We're happy to have you with us this morning. Many of you have been experienced being hired as a member of a new team or maybe being made the manager of a group that you were once a member of. So today we're going to look at the situation from a new manager's perspective. Imagine you've been given a big break and your new employer has given you the opportunity to put together a team of your own for the first time. This is an existing company with an established business model, but they're looking for new technical leadership and ideas. Executive management has confidence in you and has given you the authority to direct your team or department's resources to provide the most value and benefit to the organization. Step one, identify the functional roles needed to fulfill your team's operational duties and strategic goals. Well, that sounds like a mouthful, but basically, in a nutshell, we want to define what are the functional roles we need in our team. For example, we could break down our strategic plan into initiatives and action items. What's the minimum level of skill needed to effectively carry them out? Is custom technology core to generating value in the business, or will COTS and SAS work just fine? Another way you can look at the functional roles needed to fulfill your team is to assess the business and technology architecture. Is the business centralized or decentralized? Is technology siloed within departments, or is technology used to orchestrate cross-cutting business processes? Is the organization subject to any specific governance, rules, and compliance? So those are some areas and assessments you can look at to start building up a list of functional roles you need in your team. I was interested, gentlemen, uh, to discuss some examples of functional roles in teams. Craig, would you be interested to talk about some different roles in InfoSec teams? Oh, sure. So different roles that I've had on teams and have worked with in the past have been security engineers along with security project managers and operations roles. Those roles work closely within other departments within IT, for instance, uh, help desk and networking and developers do some cross-functional work as required by IT. That makes sense. Have you ever been part of a larger team? You know, if there was an organization within the business where there was an IT person, uh, sorry, a security person, a network person, a software person, a help desk person, and so on, where all these folks would come together and look at some business issues or sort of get together regularly to discuss issues and, and events affecting the organization? Oh, sure, sure. So currently, uh, where I'm at, we have meetings every two weeks to discuss security issues in general, but in this meeting, we have representatives from uh, AppDev, from uh, the server team, from the networking team, uh, and even from the uh, upper management team, from our directors. And it's really geared towards getting a a feel for where we need to focus our security efforts on. And, and as I said, this happens uh, 
twice a month. So it gives us a good idea going forward. And this is specifically a security-oriented get-together? It, it is in this case. I have been involved in others where, uh, for instance, um, change management teams uh, mm-hmm. have representatives from across IT to discuss changes that are coming or that have happened, whether it's security-focused or whether it's IT in general. Security has a major role within both of those functions. That makes perfect sense to me. And in my experience, if there is even a dedicated security team, you're light years beyond what a lot of organizations have where security may be a function within IT. I think what Craig was mentioning makes a lot of sense that if you have some dedicated roles like the four roles he mentioned in InfoSec team that they would liaise with the IT team, but their mandate is a little bit different. So an example of an IT department, you may have a help desk, you know, help desk specialists or technical routers, IT specialists or field engineers, network engineers that look after the network, system engineers that look after the servers, database administrators that are maintaining the databases, doing custom queries for business reports and so on, developers and DevOps. I wondered, Craig, well, there's a lot of chatter about DevOps. Have you seen much in security or is really so built into security, right? Because if you're any kind of a tester, you basically got to be able to know the frameworks pretty well and use the Metasploit and all the tools. That's absolutely right. Uh, DevOps is fairly new concept. A more specific scope. So we've talked about IT teams, which are very general, information security teams, which are a little more focused. If you wanted to look at a very specific kind of team, if you look at a red team from a security perspective, which basically are hired to break into organizations by whatever means necessary within their scope. Those teams are you know, pretty cu- pretty clear that they need certain functional roles that have certain functional capabilities. So you may have a social engineer, a signals intelligence analyst, a lockpick, you know, somebody doing surveillance. So that's just another example of a team that you may want to look at in terms of what roles you need to accomplish your mission. And moving on to step two, step two is to quantify the scale, uh, particularly in terms of full-time employees for each functional role that's needed. So this could be based on current and projected. Is it you know midterm around six to eighteen months or longer-term needs? Uh, might be estimated based on analyzing the quantity of the deferred, current, and projected tickets, projects, proposals, whatever else is going on in the organization. Uh, and one way to get a handle on this is automated assessment tools that can be useful for determining the state of the network. Um, Damien, have you had experience trying to to build a team or bring full-time folks on? Yeah, I sure have. And I think the reason we organized it in this manner is it's pretty clear based on experience and based on the nature of the business to figure out what functions you need. But what takes a little bit more legwork is to find out how much of those functions you need. As you mentioned, Drew, those are some of the methods you can do to kind of gauge it, right? You can you can look at the current workload, you can look at the current projects, and some assessment tools can help you with that. That will lead into the next step once you know how much FTEs you need. So, for example, if you need you know less than a full-time equivalent, if you need, for example, just somebody 10% time or 20% time, that's going to impact how you fill out your work chart. If you need two full-time equivalents or four full-time equivalents, then you need to think about how to scale out that, that work chart. I, I wondered if... Craig, if you've ever found that useful when you're putting a team together to kind of think about it in terms of FTEs. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a lot of a lot of technology that's required within information security is driven by compliance and standard. Those compliance standards require specific technology. For instance, a central logging system, a SIM, um, you really have to ask, well, okay, how many FTEs does it take to run a SIM? Can I just put it in and forget about it, or do I need to hire two people to watch it day and night? I've always attacked that from a what do I need to accomplish and what tools do I have to accomplish those things and how many people do I need to operate those tools effectively? 
But at the same time, you're going to be, I presume, dealing with budget constraints because uh, my understanding of security is that there's so many things that you could do that you could probably hire an almost infinite number of people if you had the resources, but nobody does. So how do you balance that You know, budget versus what can I accomplish? Right. Again, I go back to compliance and what we absolutely have to have in order to stay within compliance guidelines. And usually it's the bare minimum of what I need to to accomplish those goals. But compliance can be a good thing and a bad thing. In a good in a good way, it it helps you hire more people if you need it. And in, in a bad way, it also adds to your workload. <laughs> Right. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> Another thing I wanted to think about is maybe I'm just a little bit of an optimist here, but sort of in this thought experiment, we, one of the things we set up as part of the conditions is that the executive management had full confidence for you to use the resources you had in whatever way you want. So, for example, let's say you had a fixed budget. That budget maybe you use on technology or people, and it's your decision what, what, what you need. So um, that might help give a little bit of wiggle room in this thought experiment as well. I was wondering, Craig, along the lines of a security team, does it make sense if the organization you're working in is subject to multiple compliance standards or a particular framework, whether it be COSO or COBIT or something, if that also can add scaling out your FTEs, whether it's operations or GRC people in your own team, is that a metric you can use to kind of gauge when you're walking into an organization how much you're going to need? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, frameworks are a big part of of building a team and a program. And most of your standard frameworks, such as ISO, NIST, COBIT, and all those, actually have very clear guidelines on what specific roles you need within an IT security organization in order to be in compliance. So that kind of leads us into step three, which is really now that you've determined what functions you need and the scale of those functions, now you really need to sketch an org chart for your team design. If you're a network designer, security architect, you can kind of think of this as the design you would apply for your team. So you specify the role, you indicate the reporting structure that facilitates accountability and manageability. Ideally, you're going to have six or less direct reports per manager, and then designate which roles are in-source and which are outsourced. So if the function is a core to the business, you may want to outsource it. If the function requires a third, some even will say a half, FTE or less, outsourcing may also be a good idea. Additionally, if you need the function on-demand but not year-round, outsourcing is also a great way to go about getting that function. Damien, what are some resources that you would go to as a manager to outsource? Yeah, well, you know, since we have Craig with us today and we're talking about InfoSec, if I'm running an IT team and they're also responsible for security because it's a small organization, then there's certain security functions which are highly specified and require very highly specific training that we would definitely outsource to a security firm. I'll give you another example. Let's say you had a large number of highly repetitive tasks that you could outsource to a technician that can be done very efficiently and cost-effectively that doesn't tie up your team so they can focus on more strategic things, you might outsource that piece. In the example of an IT department, audio-video is a good specialty. Integrating it has a lot of interesting network requirements, but simply if you look at mounting and installing and checking the audio-video equipment, you may want to outsource that to an audio-video firm because you're not installing them every day. Yeah, I've noticed that every time I've been in a meeting situation, having to set up the the video conferencing system usually requires a call to somebody. Do you have any uh, examples that you can think of, Craig, where you may want to insource or outsource? Yeah, so so basically my my life revolves around risk and how much risk I'm able to accept and and or not accept. 
so when I'm dealing in a situation where I need to, or I feel like I need to outsource a function, I also have to think about what that means to my risk profile, because I'm going to have a third party who is in many times is going to have access to data that needs stay secured. So a lot of thought has to be put into, uh, do I want other people outside of the organization seeing or knowing what we're doing security-wise? And if I want to move forward with an outsource person, I need to make sure contract, I need to make sure the legal teams are involved to help protect us should something happen. We've all heard the backlash from Target, right, that came from third-party outsource. Mm-hmm. And, and another, uh, also another good source for uh, third-party hands is an internship program. There's, uh, no matter where, you're, where you are, there's always a school, a college within a reasonable distance that oftentimes has a program that you can tap into. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Craig. So that's really actually kind of formulates a fourth thing for this checklist to evaluate the criticality of the data that function interacts with and, and the sensitivity of that data and the risk of that data. And that, that can help you decide in your org chart whether to insource or outsource. Do you feel that when you are using an intern that the function has to be really tightly defined and, and discreet and has to be a good process to ensure good results? Or do you find that there's just enough talent that you can you can tell right away whether somebody's going to work out or not as an intern? Well, with an intern, you have to stay within the constraints of the internship program of whatever school they're at. For instance, you wouldn't take a art intern and put them in an IT role. Interns are at a level where they don't have a whole lot of experience, so you can't just pile things onto them like you could with a third-party contractor, for instance, that has a lot of experience. That makes good sense. Drew, do you want to talk about the fourth step? Yeah, step four is, of course, uh, gather your human resources. Once you've got your your team sort of defined and outlined and structured, then it's time to actually build that team, um, whether you're having new hires or bringing people in internally from the company that are already there. Um, And I think this is an interesting conversation because when you're posting a job, you know, on a job board or whatever, there's, I think, a tendency to say, you know, we want the best networking engineer or whatever we want the highest certifications you know we want um, we're out hunting a unicorn um, and I think sometimes that can backfire on people yeah that's a good point there's some other routes we may want to go to to hunt people down uh, that we want to recruit for our team one is you know if you if you have a particular technology you worked with well that technology probably has a VAR program or value-added reseller program so if they're really interested in making a sale to you maybe you got bent their ear and you can say well hey who's the best consulting engineer that partners with you in the area you know, find out from word of mouth where the best engineers are, find out how to work with them. You may then recruit that outfit for your outsourcing piece based on the word of mouth of that particular engineer's skills. I think word of mouth also works if you, lots of people are on social media today. Uh, you know people, the people you know know other people. I think that's a great opportunity. Greg, do you think that's legitimate, being in security, though, with the, the sort of the risks that come with hiring folks and the vetting? Well, so, so a, a couple points. Um one of my biggest pet peeves out there that I see constantly, I see it on LinkedIn, I see it in job postings, is people being specific about the the technologies that are in use at the organization, which is a, a, a huge risk. Um, you're putting out what your infrastructure is out 
to whoever wants to see it, right? Um, attackers and hackers can use that information against you. But th that being said, I, I try to be as general as I can um, while still getting the point across in a, in a job posting. I, I also have to keep in mind that I'm never going to get somebody who's going to match 100% with, with what I'm asking for. So while I, I don't go overboard, I, I do put everything that I desire in a person. And if I, you know, get somebody who matches 80, 90 percent of that, then I'm happy. Um, mm -hmm. So, so that leads to another point, um, which is you know, when we're talking about, you know, sort of just listing out a job description. There's obviously specific skills you're looking for, but there's also mindset. Uh, I think mindset can be really important when you're looking to fill a position. So, you know, do they seem like they can think for themselves? Are they open to learning new things? Um, do they have a personality that's going to fit your team and your culture? And uh, Craig, how do you kind of get a sense of that from people when you're when you're interviewing them? Oh right, yeah. So, so those soft skills are are key, and uh, that a lot of people overlook. You you could have the uh, the best person that's technically capable, but uh, you know they they just do not get along well with others, and can actually uh, be a deterrent to a good workplace. Um, so, in any interview that I do, I always ask certain questions about, you know, did, do you like to work within a team or do you like to work by yourself that give me an idea of, you know, what kind of personality they have. So it, it's, uh, it's very important to find that out. I don't know if you have as, as much of a challenge with this in InfoSec where it's a really highly technical discipline, but I think sometimes uh, it's worth testing somebody during an interview to see how much they're willing to learn new skills and new ways of doing things. So maybe even if you're hiring a network engineer, you may throw some server questions at them and say, hey, if you know the server guys, the server team's out at training and you know everything's crashing and burning, like what you know, how could you help with this? Um, I find it challenging that not everybody is is super stoked about learning new things all the time. <laughs> I don't know. Do you see? Is that the same in security, or is security a little easier because it's so technical? No, it, it's the same. Um, we, most most security programs that I've been involved in have been um, the, the sort where yeah, you your duties are going to bleed into other parts of, of IT, and and you have to have those cross functional skills in order to survive. Uh, one thing I do to weed out people who may not have those cross-functional uh, cross skills or the cross-functional social skills is I will invite other managers within IT to interview uh, the candidate as well. Um, that is an excellent way to find out things about people that they wouldn't necessarily tell the person that they're ultimately going to report directly to. Do you also think that the ability to think for themselves is really critical? One of the things that that concerns me sometimes is obviously we don't want people going rogue and, you know, totally going off and causing problems, but that you can give them an assignment which has some degree of leeway in defining how it's going to be executed and accomplished and that someone can go off and think for themselves and finish it without you know, reporting back, ask, asking it to their manager every two seconds how to do something. Hey, absolutely. One thing that I always tell my employees or, or potential employees is that if 
you're given an assignment and you run into an issue, if you're going to bring me a problem, also bring me a possible solution because that will show me that you've already put thought into it. You're not just passing the buck on to somebody else. And that, that's, that's crucial skill to have. That critical thinking shows that the person taking the initiative to figure things out for themselves. Yeah, that can be important because you don't want to spend your time walking someone step by step through every assignment that you give them. Well, some people have a particular degree of acumen judging or evaluating folks' capabilities. Sometimes you just got to trial by fire. So I think if you can hire people on a provisional basis and at-will basis wherever possible, it gives you a little bit of flexibility to try people out or an intern program like Craig mentioned. I think that's really helpful. And what do you mean by provisional or at-will? Are you talking about to see this as a six-month engagement or a one-year engagement? Some places do do contract to hire. And that gives them a lot of ability to work with them and see how they're working in their team. Another way is that maybe you can hire someone on as an independent contractor or a 1099 or a consultant to do a project with you first before you, you try to recruit them in-house. Mm-hmm. I don't know. if you had much luck with that, Craig? I, we do have certain situations where we will do a try-before-you-buy uh, situation, but um, most often we do enough interviewing. As I mentioned, we have multiple areas within IT that will interview my InfoSec candidates. And by the end of that um, three or four hour ordeal for the candidate, we have a pretty good idea of how they're going to be within the organization. So we, we don't often go to the try before you buy that's a good point. If you have a really robust hiring process, you don't have to resort to that. And that, and in some ways, I could see the tribe before you buy can also limit the talent pool a little bit because a lot of really talented folks don't want to mess around. They just want to get in somewhere. That's yeah, right. they can say, I can I can take my skills to Miami if I'm not happy here. You're, you're going to want to play around. <laughs> uh, the final point we have on uh, gathering your human resources is uh, starting off team members kind of as a, a pool of flexible resources rather than you know, sort of inking them inking them into place on an organization chart. And and Damien, I think you had some thoughts on that. Yeah, I kind of want to expand on that. So again, this thought experiment is that, hey, we're building a team for a new team, right? Or or a team from, we're rebuilding a team from scratch. So within that, we have some flexibility that um, we have an idea of an org chart and structure in mind, but maybe we want to bring some people in and maybe we find out they are really talented in an area that we weren't originally looking for a particular position that meets, meets something else. So if you could develop them as a pool or provide some kind of an advancement ladder, well, like, I don't know if you agree this might make sense, Craig, but let's say if you start some out in ops, depending on their experience level, and you find out, okay, this guy is really amazing tension to detail, has really great development skills, we're going to put them in a a web app testing or or something like that where you start off as a pool and then funnel them in certain directions based on their interests and what they're good at. That's absolutely right. And especially if you are hiring somebody that is directly out of college that, you know, they, they think they might know what they like or want to do. But once they get into the job and are doing it on a day-to-day basis, it might become apparent that, yeah, it's really not the right fit for them. An example would be 
when I graduated college, I accepted a job at a financial institution as a an IT auditor. After it, it didn't take me long to figure out that I really hated doing audit work, and the <laughs> the the the, uh, the one specific part about an audit that I liked to do was the information security part, and that's how I got my start within this field. Is I. Uh, working on an on an audit and like hey th- this infosec stuff is kind of cool and so i spotted an opening on on the infosec team there and and haven't looked back since going back to my point is that a somebody new to the IT field may not necessarily realize what they're good at yet and i think what makes a good manager is is seeing that and realizing that and helping them to find that good fit. Because if you can keep them within the organization but in a different role, then you're you're all the better. Putting these items in perspective, let's try to think about which one is the most important. Do you think it's harder to find folks with the right mindset or harder to find folks with skills? Is it easier to train somebody in skills after you find the right mindset? Or which one do you think needs to come first? I think the mindset needs to come first. It's Skills can be taught. I mean, when we're born, we didn't have the skills to, you know, administer a firewall or whatever. Um, <laughs> so, but That'd be but one strange baby. <laughs> but it, it, the soft skills are harder to learn. If you've got somebody who's a total introvert, you're not going to turn them into a team player overnight. However. If they've never touched a firewall, send them to a a week long, you know, firewall class, and they've got the basic skills that they need. The fourth step we we're just talking about is to gather the best human resources. Now that we've got the best human resources, the next phase is really step five is burn in. So, you know, for a lot of us come from a technical background, you may think of burning in a server, or burning in a network, or uh, you know, running something for a period of time to see how it goes. So the analogy here is that basically you want to bring the team members into a situation where they actually have to work as a team in real time, not just hand things off to each other, but actually collaborating, um, overcome some common challenge. And ideally it would be uh, in a gamified yet productive event. Like, for example, you could have an IT scavenger hunt where they have to go out and identify the most issues or look for the oldest technology to replace or something like that. You could have a capture the flag um to audit your own technology, you know, finding finding flags like, for example, sensitive data out in open share, things things of that nature, um, and then also observe your team for for a period like a 90-day trial period. We talked about how do they spend their time. I think everybody does their job, and they have to do their deliver at the end of the day. But if you look at what people choose to spend doing their time on, that's really what they're passionate about and what they love. Are they self-starters or do they wait around told what to be do? Do they follow through and complete the work that they said they would? That's a lot harder than, than it sounds on the surface. For example, do, do people actually consider what kind of time commitment is involved before saying yes to something so they know they can actually co- come through with it? What level of functional knowledge do they have? You know, they may say, hey, I'm certified... Uh, well, I hate to pick on CISP because we're both CISP, Greg, but you know, I could say somebody comes in and says they're a CISP, but if they don't have a lot of experience to back it up, uh, you know, they typically get picked on a lot. Um, or, you know, there's other certs, whether they're a CCNA and they're freshly minted out of college and they've never actually had to go into a down network before. So really figure out what is the real functional knowledge that they have and then look at who's getting work done and who's goofing off. I mean, obviously we have to blow off some steam at work, but I think productivity is, is important. 
And also think about motivations. So in, in this burn-in period, you can sort of discover a little bit about what motivates people. Do they they have a desire to serve a sense of higher purpose? Like, for example, if they work for the, the government in a, in a security job, they're typically getting paid a lot less than the private sector, but they may be doing it because they have a desire to serve their country and protect their fellow citizens. Or are they motivated by money and profit? They're always flipping to the next job that pays them. Are they motivated to learn? A lot of people, I think, in this space love learning. So, you know, being able to uh, fund them to go to training might be a big motivation for them. I think uh, working with good people is, is uh, something very important to folks, or working with people that, that have similar goals and, and similar uh, skill set levels, I think, motivates a lot of people. Some people are just motivated by getting things done. So I know that's kind of a long laundry list here we kind of went through, but uh, I wondered, Craig, if you've ever had an opportunity or thought about trying to do, you know, a, a burn-in team situation where a team had to work together in real time, whether it's came naturally out of their job or you kind of engineered the situation. Yeah, uh, so the the last few teams I've been a part of, we've just been so thin on resources that we just don't have time to do any sort of like scavenger hunt or capture the flag or anything like that. But I think having all hands team meetings is crucial tool that uh, management can use to, to really gauge how well people are working together. And another, another factor that can help you determine how a person's going to work within your team is really knowing what age group they're in. For instance, uh, millennials are more likely to send an email than pick up a phone and call somebody. That or was, probably a text, even not even an email. Well, yeah, that that too. I, that I found that extremely frustrating um, when I first had to deal with a millennial uh, on my team. That you you ask them to to call somebody to get some information, and they end up sending an email. But once once I realized that that's what you know, they're most comfortable doing, then you figure out ways to work with that. So so you find as a manager, you're more inclined to uh, adjust to their working style rather than trying to force them into uh, a working or productivity style that you're familiar or comfortable with? I think you have to find a middle ground. I'm not going to change a millennial to be uh, somebody they're not, and I'm not going to change my... <laughs> ways into something I'm not either. So you find a, a good compromise that you can both work with and then and then everybody's happy. You're not going to start trying to manage them via Instagram and Snapchat? No, this is not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it is a security uh, position, so you've got to be careful and have control over the communication. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that makes good sense. That's a great example where you could sort of appeal to the nature of your job saying, hey, this is a security job. We can't have all these out-of-band communications going out there in a public medium. Uh, they really, really got to go through this thing, but we're going to work with you, and maybe we'll stand up an instant message server in the company and that's secured. As a manager, you have to be able to embrace new technologies when they come down the pipe because instant messaging technology can, can really help within an IT organization where some people can you know, get off five paragraphs before I can finish typing a one sentence uh, with with the texting language these days. Um, so <laughs> you just have to, again, you just have to find what works best for for different people and and let them roll with it. Um, 
it, it can help productivity uh, greatly. Yeah, I think that's a good point. There's so much about what you said resonated with me. Um, you know, one of the things is being flexible new technology, because especially in security, like if you don't get out in front of that and enable them to put out what they want, then they're going to put it out there and then you have to go back and try to secure it later. And that's really miserable. And then also new ideas can sometimes help you be more efficient and think of, of new ways of doing things. Craig, since we're talking about generational things, about telephones. So I, I also am a firm believer of phones and real-time communication as a, t- a much more high-value communication medium. But I'm more inclined to use a cell phone than a desk phone because I prefer that form factor. Do you do you see any of that, your team and your experience, that some folks have particular preferences based on their, their generation or the technology they grew up with? And how much longer do you think desk phones are going to stay around for? Well, um, in, in most IT organizations these days, a cell phone is a crucial tool. You can guarantee or, or nearly guarantee that most IT professionals are going to have their phone on their hip or in their pocket at any given time. So if you want to make sure that you're going to get that person directly, then, yeah, a, a cell phone's the best way to, to contact them. On. If I'm picking up a phone and calling somebody because I need to ask them a question or, 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 or get information quickly, I'm more likely to pick up my desk phone. Um, and the fact that with our telephony network, I don't have to pay long distance charges or anything like that. On my cell phone, I do. Um, I work in an organization where the organization does not provide you a cell phone. Um, so I have to pay everything that I do on, on my, my own. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I, I'm more likely to, in that case, to use my desk phone, but you're, you're absolutely right. A, a younger person might be more inclined to pick up their cell phone. And um, Although I, I'll say this, seeing my own teenage son interact with his phone, I have to twist his arm to actually get him to use the phone to make a phone call. It's like a painful <laughs> event for him, and I'm just thinking, you know, five, ten years ahead when he goes into the workforce, if not being able to be comfortable having a phone conversation is going to be a drawback or some skill that actually he's going to have to learn. (laughs) Do you think the next generation would be comfortable with, like, FaceTime or Skype video chat or audio chat more than than the traditional cell call, or do you think it's the same? It's just a real-time voice-to-voice? That's a good question. I don't know. I think they... Uh, my assumption is is that what he likes is the asynchronity of it, that he can get to it when he wants to get to it. He can take his time to think what he wants to think. And it, there's just, I think, a more level of comfort having that remove, having that, you know, literally that medium in between him and the person he's communicating with, as opposed to a real-time conversation, whether it's voice or video. But maybe yeah. if it's, you know, newfangled tech video, he'd be more interested. I don't know. And and I can I, I can chime in here too. I, I, for about ten years, I worked out of my home office, where you know most of my communication was on the phone or through instant message. I walked away from that job because I missed the face-to-face interaction with people. Uh, I needed to get back into an office environment because I'm that type of person. The the kids that are growing up today, I think, are probably more of the opposite, where they would thrive in a work by myself out of my home office um, environment just because they are born with a phone in their hands. Yeah, it's entirely possible. Tying that back to 
functional roles, are there certain roles where, you know, if you find, if you identify a team member who has that kind of preference that they'd be, they'd be a better fit for, um, you know, there's always the age old, uh, <laughs> stereotype that an IT person, you know, you throw pizza under the door and they stay in their office and they, they keep working like a bearded Linux guru or, uh, or somebody like that. But do you think realistically, like maybe a developer who wants to kind of, you know, really needs to concentrate might like that better? or might suit them more to have, have more asynchronous communication? I, I think for for particular roles, yes. And, and for particular personality types, that kind of environment works best. However, um, in an IT organization, if you let one person do it, you, you kind of have to open it up to everybody. And let's face it, you, you put some people in a, in a situation where they're, they're working out of their home office with so many distractions around that some people are just going to fail miserably at it. That's a great point. And, and uh, really, when you're thinking about the org chart, I don't know which step this would be best captured as, but I think about the remote teleworker global collaboration teams that are seem to be emerging, especially in the startup space, that maybe if there may be some folks who work better in that capacity, but you have to make it for everybody. So maybe you give them a day a week to be remote or something. What would be your comfort level, Greg, giving some blanket you know permission to work so much time remote, do you feel like you need a way to track their productivity for that to happen? Or well, I think when when I let somebody work from home, I expect them to be available via their their cell phone or their home phone um, if I need them, or to you know answer an email um, within a, a pretty quick amount of time. I, I want to know that they're not out shopping or out doing whatever instead of working. I, I have worked on a team where we had one day where we could work from home, and you you have to balance out. Well, okay, do you let them pick a Friday or a Monday to work from home? Because then it, they could see that as an extension to their weekend. Um, and there's a lot of HR issues that you have to work out. I think this is probably then a good time to uh, transfer to our, our step six, our sixth and final step in building a team, designing a team, and that is to optimize. Um, so the general idea is now that you've, you've got the team in place, you're going to refine it, uh, get it nailed down. And one of the ways to do that is to establish goals, kind of like we were talking about with how, did, how, how are folks performing? Are they go-getters or are they self-activated? Uh, Can you trust them to actually work from home? Um, so that means you know KPI, key performance indicators, how you're measuring productivity, uh, maybe some strategic project training. Another step is to officially assign roles on the org chart. Um, we had talked about earlier on being a little bit more flexible and fluid, but as, as you get this team defined, it makes sense for people to have sort of well-defined uh, responsibilities and boundaries. Um, and I guess the flip side of developing uh, metrics like KPIs is that if people are performing poorly, they're, they're, it may come a time when you have to let them go because of that. Um, and then the flip side of that, of course, is recognizing folks who are actually performing and maybe even performing above expectation. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the meritocracy idea. It's difficult sometimes to quantify workload and workflow, but if you're making a greenfield team from scratch, you may be able to build that in. What do you think, Craig? And I think the biggest thing that you have to have before you can determine how well a person is doing, you, you have to establish goals for them and expectations. Because if you have nothing to measure them against, then then you really have no basis to 
to tell them that they're doing a poor job. When you make goals for your employees, I'm wondering if you had any practices that you liked in particular. For example, sometimes I've given people goals to accomplish a strategic project or to do some training, goals that are like above and beyond their day-to-day, and then if possible, tie that to a bonus or something like that. Have you ever had the opportunity or do you find that kind of thing useful? Yeah, absolutely. And I like to assign goals that I know will push their abilities slightly and what they can do it just makes a better worker in the long run. In the IT field in general, especially like a consulting firm that's highly transactional, some KPIs that are easier to measure are number of tickets or service requests completed in a given time, how far their service level is being met if you have defined SLAs, maybe even customer feedback surveys. Are there any KPIs that are easy to measure in InfoSec or is it very difficult? For example, if so many flags on an audit. Yeah, you do have metrics with InfoSec like the number of vulnerabilities that existed in your environment on a monthly basis. So there's not really, at least in the environment that I'm in now, there's not too many things such as help desk tickets or anything like that 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 I can use. What What I like to do is, on an annual basis, is assign a particular goal that okay, you need to configure a device this way and get specific alerts out of it by this time period. And if you do it, you will meet this goal objective. So that concludes our our six solid steps to build a technical team. Sanity Check is a segment where we listen to real engineers' questions like, why the heck does my manager do this thing that drives me nuts? Names have been changed to protect the innocent. So one question that's come up, my manager asked me to check the technical feasibility of doing something, and I told them it wasn't feasible. Got an instant message from my colleague. They had asked them, why did my manager do that? Why did their manager ask multiple team members the same question, or why did they ask them in in, in a certain sequence? Um, I'll take a stab at this first, if you guys don't mind. Sure. I mean, I guess I could see a couple of things going on. Uh, one is the manager is just trying to solicit a variety of opinions to find out if there's a consensus around the feasibility of some action, which I, I think seems legitimate, although maybe it could have been done in a better way. Because too, if I'm of a more Machiavellian mindset, I might think, okay, this is some kind of test, and did I pass or did I fail? What's going on? Is the manager is my manager trying to trick me or test me somehow? Maybe making me a little paranoid if I hear that he's asking other people the same question. So I think if the manager legitimately wants to find out the feasibility of it, um, I, I would introduce it to the whole team and uh, or find some way that it doesn't feel like a trap or a trick. Yeah, and I can chime in too as well. Um, so one reason the manager may have done that is the, the person who did the, the technical feasibility check may not have provided any backup evidence to support their their answer. So if, if I ask an employee that, hey, go find out if we can do, you know, A, B, and C. And if they come back with, no, we can't do it and nothing else, then then I might be more inclined to ask somebody else to do it because that doesn't really, that answer doesn't really tell me that you put the effort in. I, I really like that answer a lot, Craig. So I think that kind of puts together a good pro tip out there for all our engineers is that if you are asked to do a feasibility or answer some, whether or not something is possible, it's really important that your answer include some level of justification or summary of your findings so that it does provide context that the manager can make a decision and act on. Absolutely. Yeah, and understand what it was that led you to that conclusion, because there may be 
extenuating circumstances of some kind, business or otherwise, that the you know the manager is going to need that context. As Drew mentioned, the manner in which it's the question is introduced is important in terms of its fairness and how it's perceived. What if they had asked a question, something that pertains to one particular functional role, and then they ask somebody in a different functional role the same question? Do you think there's an implication that the one who was assigned that functional role really should own that answer and own that question, and that it's really or undermining their position by going around to someone in a different functional role? So let's say you have a security engineer that's a firewall guru and you ask them, hey, can we implement this feature with this firewall? And then they also go and they talk to the server engineer and they ask them the same question. Yeah, that, that the, the firewall engineer could definitely take that the wrong way. Some of the reasons that I may do that would be because if, if I know the server guy likes to tinker within networking and likes to have their nose in a book much more than the firewall guy does, then yeah, I might be curious of what, what their opinion is uh, as well. I, I think the, the key is to be as open and honest to your employees as you can. In other words, ask these things within a group environment so that everybody knows who is being asked. And if other people want to chime in, they can at that time. Well, thanks for joining us on The Next Level. I'm Damien Hoising. And I'm Drew Connery-Murray, and you can find my blogs on PacketPushers.net and follow me on Twitter at at Drew underscore CM. Craig, uh, how can folks get in touch with you? If anybody has questions, they can email me directly at C-A-M-P-B-C-R at gmail.com. We'd love to get your feedback on the show. You can leave comments on the blog post that accompanies this podcast on PacketPushers.net or drop us a line at nextlevel at PacketBrigade.com. Thanks for listening.